Hey, United Church, um, I hope you are well, and uh, or as well as one can be in these uh, extremely challenging and, and in so many ways difficult days, but um, I do genuinely hope that you are hanging in there and doing well, and that the peace of God is with you in um, maybe even visceral ways in this uh, crazy time. Um, my name is Jay Kim, and I am a church leader. Uh, pastor um, in the Silicon Valley of California, and so a uh, couple of states beneath you. <laughs> and uh, but uh, my friend Aaron, who is your pastor, uh, uh, he, he's a lead, a church leader, and a follower of Jesus that I have long admired um, for his courage, courage, and convictions, and his passion, uh, and his deep desire to follow Jesus as faithfully as possible, embodying the reality of what it means to live the way of Jesus, uh, even when that way is difficult. Um, he asked me to share a few thoughts with all of you in this teaching series that you all have uh, recently started called Try This at Home. And um, without hesitation, I said yes, because I, uh, I love Aaron and I love um, the way that God is using him to lead and shape and guide your community and the fact that you are um, hopefully a light of hope in a place that really needs it like Seattle, Washington. So um, yeah, this series that you are all in, I, I love the premise. I love the title, by the way, uh, Try This at Home. And uh, I love that title because I think, you know, in the late modern, postmodern, Western, hyper-individualized world, so many people understand the church as uh, essentially a peddler of content, you know, an organization that um, basically gives you stuff to consume, be it a sermon or music or some stuff for your kids or whatever. But in reality, church, the church, biblically speaking, you know, God's gathered people, the body of Christ, the church has always been and will always be a try this at home sort of reality that church is not the hour and 15 minutes or so that we spend in a room together on a Sunday morning or right now watching digitally at home on our laptops or our televisions. But church rather is a, a, a try this at home embodied everyday reality, a participatory reality, uh, a community of creative participation that we belong to, that we are bound up together into as the people of God. That being the church doesn't start, you know, on Sunday morning at a certain time and ends 75 minutes later, but rather being the church is a constant ongoing reality, much like being a part of a family. Family, you know, my kids are not here, but I have not yet. I have not ceased being their father in this moment. My wife is not here in the room, but I have not ceased being her husband. I am and always am a father and a husband. I am and always am a son. Uh, no matter where I am, what I'm doing, I am always participating in that reality in real embodied ways because that is my identity. It's my familial 
identity. And that is the church. We are the church. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we are constantly, if we have said yes to Jesus and uh, yes to um, a life of participating in his body, then we are always the church and we are always being the church. We're always living as the church. And so in that way, and in so many other ways, the church is a try this at home reality, something that we participate in at all times. And so in this series, you all together have been exploring um, different spiritual practices or disciplines, whatever you want to call them, uh, that you might actually literally try at home. And so Aaron very graciously asked me if I would share just a few thoughts on um, a practice that a spiritual practice discipline that has been formational for me, particularly in this time as we've been sheltering in place. I know you all have been sheltering in place for a while and and will continue to do so for a little while longer. Uh, That's the same situation here in the Silicon Valley as well. So we're right there with you. And so we're asking the question as we do this, as we live in this sort of strange season of isolation um, uh, where we're hunkered down and sheltering in place at home most of the time, what are some practices that we can begin to implement, some, some rhythms of life that we can begin to implement that might form us and shape us more and more every day together, even though we're not physically together, but shape us as we participate together into the one people of God, the body of Christ, the church. And so I thought I would share one that has been um, truly formational for me uh, in uh, both you know, recent months during this time of sheltering in place, but for several months um, before that as well. One uh, practice that I have been Um, I'm a novice at it, but uh, I I engaged in this spiritual practice because it was one that I recognized uh, about a year ago. It was just like grossly missing in my life. Um, And as a church leader, what I realized was that it wasn't just missing in my life. It was a practice that's missing like in our church. And I don't want to speak for your church. I don't want to speak for all churches, but certainly at our church, it wasn't something that we were fully participating in, particularly in a communal way. And that practice is the practice of confession. Um, And even when I say the word, for so many of us, it... um, it either sounds totally unfamiliar, like, what? what is, I mean, I know what the word confession means, but confession as a regular ongoing practice, um, I don't know. What, what is that? I, I, that's not something I do. Or maybe you have like a Catholic background or something. And you're like, oh, I know what confession is. It's like a very particular practice where I go and do a very particular set of things and then that's it you know it's just a physical thing i do and or did maybe in my previous life and so for me i just realized like i had a i had an intellectual an intellectual theological understanding of confession but it wasn't a reality in my life and this um sort of came to a head for me a couple of years ago actually uh, my wife and i um, had a fight we, we got into this big argument one night and it was it was one of those arguments that like started really small and it was really silly and um, there was really no point but it just exploded and, and began to reveal some deeper underlying things that were underpinning sort of some tension in our uh, in our marriage at the time and so we had this big argument one night and um, we didn't settle it that night we just sort of quieted down and went to bed and didn't talk about it Next morning, we woke up, we had a quiet morning, didn't address it, didn't talk about it. 
and then we both go on our ways to our separate places of employment and uh, later on that afternoon after thinking and after praying and considering sort of um, how things got out of hand and my fault in the entire situation I texted her you know because that's what you do in the digital age right you you text and so I texted her uh, a short little hey sorry about last night uh, it was my fault uh, sorry I texted her that and then um, you know I thought I was like great I, I apologize I you know I did the thing I was supposed to do but I uh, I got home that evening for dinner and we got to talking and my wife says to me at one point she's like you know you still haven't apologized and my immediate response was did you not get my text I texted you what do you mean I apologized I said I'm sorry I could show you the text in fact the iMessage thing says it was read you read it so what do you mean I didn't apologize and she said to me yeah you texted the words but like is that really is that how we apologize like is that what it's come down to then we had this conversation about it and I very quickly realized like you know there's something about like this digital tool that uh, makes things really convenient and efficient but actually falls short of like the deepest human connection we can have in situations like this. And that got me processed. And so we, we, we actually talked that night and, and I apologized in person. And uh, I did more than apologize. Um, I, we, as we began to talk, the apology uh, shifted and it turned into a confession. I began to, because I began to realize, again, deeper underlying things that were underpinning the tension that it wasn't just about the one argument we had, but that there were things that were really broken and flawed um, that needed healing and restoration in me. Um, and that didn't happen when I sent the quick little text. It happened as we sat communally together as a family, husband and wife, face to face and began to have a real conversation in person. The apology began to transition into a sort of confession. And uh, something else happened in that experience. What I realized was the apology allowed me to get um, a little bit of the tension off my chest and to alleviate some of my guilt a little bit. But it wasn't until I confessed. It wasn't until we did the deeper work of really digging in and me um, exposing myself and my brokenness uh, in, in deeper, more meaningful ways. It wasn't until that happened. It wasn't until confession that real reconciliation between us began to take place. That real healing began to take place. And I think this is... Um, crucially important particularly in our day and age you know uh, we, we often think of confession today um, like I said earlier we we either don't think about it at all or we think about it as like a high church sort of technicality it's just like some official thing you're supposed to do in the Catholic Church but biblically speaking like in the scriptures confession is this very involved it's very um, public and it's really communal it, it's really uncomfortable show you an example this is like an ancient text um, the book of Leviticus it's a book we call Leviticus in the Hebrew scriptures what what many Christians call the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16 verses 20 to 22 um, the the people of God the Israelites at the time they receive instruction from God 
on how they are to participate together in an involved public communal way in the spiritual practice and the act of confession. This is what it says. When Aaron, um, that's Moses's brother, he is like essentially the first high priest of Israel. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the, the place where the people of God would meet with God, um, the tent of meeting and the altar, uh, he shall bring forward a live goat. So he should he's going to bring a goat, like an actual goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, the live goat, all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall then send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Um, often this goat was called the scapegoat. Some of us are familiar with that for that term. Um, and so think about what confession looked like for the people of God. Uh, in the ancient world, before Jesus in the book of Leviticus, right? It's incredibly involved. It's like a, it's a practice that, in, that has multiple moving parts. There's the high priest. He would have been wearing all of his high priest garb, like particular clothing. They would have brought a live goat. And then when it says that he would have placed all, confessed and placed all of the sins of the nation, all of their wrongdoing on um, this goat, what the, it doesn't mean that he would have just said like a trite, Lord, we confess all our sins. No, what it means is that Aaron would have had, it would have been this extended exercise of naming the collective sins of the people. Like it wouldn't have been like a short, trite little one sentence, you know, all of our sins on this goat, take it away. It would have been like, Lord, this and this and this and this and this. You can imagine it would have taken um, a long, long time. It was a very specific and very public and involved and communal exercise, right? All of this incredibly involved, really public, really communal, way more so than like a simple trite little I'm sorry. Confession is not simple apology. Confession is, is a much more robust and involved and public and communal exercise. And some people argue, it's like, well, Jesus died for us on the, on the cross, right? That's why we call him like our, our sacrifice, our scapegoat. He's the one, he took it all. So we don't need to participate in these sorts of things. We just say like, oh, Jesus did it all. So I'm sorry, I claim Jesus and I'm good to go. While I certainly agree that we can spare the goats now, the reality is the New Testament continues to press the involved public communal nature of Christian confession. I mean, a really well-known passage in the New Testament, James chapter 5, um, the writer says, Is anyone among you uh, in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And think about what the New Testament, after Jesus' sacrifice, 
talks about when it talks about the practice of confession. Are you in trouble? Pray. Are you happy? Praise God. Are you sick? Then ask for prayer and they will anoint you with oil. And do all of these things. I mean, think about the gamut of emotions, of human emotion. Like people who are in trouble, people who are really happy, people who are sick and in need. In all of those things, pray, praise, and receive prayer. And then it's all summarized in this idea. As you do these things, confess your sins to each other. Like as you pray when you're in trouble and as you receive prayer for your sickness, even as you praise God in your joy and happiness, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confession is a is an is a um an ongoing crucially important part of what it means for us to be the church together. We often think of prayer and sermons and singing songs as the church, the exercise of the church. But the reality is confession is smack dab in the middle of this call, right? To pray when you're in trouble, to sing and to praise God when you're full of joy and happy, to receive prayer when you are sick from the elders of the church. In the midst of all of this, there is also Confession. Confess your sins to one another. Now, it's really fascinating. The Hebrew word for, for confession and the Greek word for confession, the, the two primary languages of the written text of the Bible, Old Testament and New. In Hebrew and in Greek, both words for confession can also mean to praise God or to give thanks joyfully. Because confession is not just apologizing, feeling bad for something wrong you did, getting some guilt off of your chest. Confession is a part of a much more robust, holistic sort of healing that comes our way when we release the brokenness and sin within us and receive from God the healing that only comes when we make room in our broken lives to receive that which only God can give. The writer Richard Foster, he writes this. He says, both forgiveness and healing are involved in confession. Forgiveness positions us in a right relationship toward God, and healing frees us from the domination of our present by our past. Confession is a means, the means, by which we release the brokenness of the past and its grip on our present and its ability to um, blur our hope for the future. And in that way and in so many more ways, practicing confession on it, I would suggest daily, but if not daily, on a weekly basis is so crucially important. When we don't, there is a burden of unconfession that can choke joy and life and meaning right out of us. The psalmist in Psalm 32 writes this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I confessed, essentially. And did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
And look at what the psalmist says. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When we do not regularly practice confession, something in us begins to deteriorate. And so as we sort of wind down, I want to um, give you just a few pragmatic ways to practice confession in your life. The first thing I would say, and these are things that I am trying to implement and have been trying to implement in my life um, over the course of the last few months. Uh, the first thing I would say is this. Set aside time daily if you can, and if not daily, then a few times a week to actually write down specific confessions. Um, and by set aside time, I don't just mean like men make a mental note. I mean like literally on your phone or whatever calendar you use, write it down like on uh, at this time every day, I'm going to spend 15 minutes just in confession. Or um, these three days a week, I'm going to set aside 15, 20 minutes to just confess, spend time confessing. Um, and write it down, whether it's in a journal or just a piece of paper somewhere, somewhere you can keep it for safekeeping, write it down. One of the reasons why I think physically writing with like pen and paper uh, or pencil and paper, whatever you want to use is so important is because um, writing with our hands, very, very different than typing for most of us, writing with our hands has a way, it's slower for most of us, certainly slower for me than typing. Uh, and it's tactile and physical. It's embodied in a way that like writing digitally is, is not. Um, and what it does is it slows us down even neurologically. And I think that's so crucially important when it comes to confession because confession is uncomfortable. And when our bodies get uncomfortable, the mechanism of the human body by nature is to try to rush through the process because we don't like being uncomfortable. And so physically writing actually forces you to slow down and to settle into the discomfort of confession. And I will not lie, it is uncomfortable. It's not a fun exercise, but it is a freeing exercise. And so physically, on with pen and paper, I would suggest set aside time every day or a few times a week and with pen and paper, write down very specific confessions and then pray those confessions in the moment. Write them down. And as you write, may your writing be your prayer. Lord, I confess that today or Lord, I confess that this week, these things I have done out of the brokenness of my life, I mean, I confess them to you. I ask your forgiveness and I receive your healing. I would also suggest um, establishing relational rhythms of confession with trusted friends or leaders within your faith community. Um, this is so crucially important and this is, it takes a lot of time. Uh, this isn't something I would suggest you do with just anybody, um, but rather someone that you deeply trust, someone who you know is faithfully following Jesus, to, at least to the best of your knowledge, and someone who has a deep, genuine love and care for you. Someone who you know um, wants to see you thrive in your life of following Jesus and establish the relational rhythm. And much like writing down specific confessions, I would suggest setting, setting aside specific times, uh, whether it's you know monthly or weekly, to meet with that person. Right now it might be over Zoom or FaceTime, but to, and the whole meeting obviously doesn't have to be about confession, but to include confession as a rhythm to your relationship, to get together on a consistent basis and say, hey, the last week has looked like this for me, or the last month has looked like this for me. 
And um, point number one, you know, writing down your confessions as prayers is really helpful when you establish these relational rhythms because it's very easy then to pull out your confession journal and to say, yeah, here's, here's what the last week or the last month has looked like for me. Here are some things that I've written down. I just want to share it with you. Um, and let them pray for you. And maybe let them confess to you and you pray for them. The final thing I would say as a pragmatic practice of confession, pragmatic application of the practice of confession, is to write and recite confessions together in community, whether that is your family or with your housemates or maybe like a, your community group or a group of friends. Right now it might be on Zoom, maybe once a week or whatever your rhythm might be. Um, this is something that we were actually exploring doing at our church right before coronavirus hit and we can no longer meet in person. It's something that I hope we will do when we get back together, but write together. And I mean like together, write corporate words of confession and then recite those words together. There's deep power in hearing the voices of others confess the same things. Now, of course, because this is corporate and communal, the, um, the words and the confessions are going to be a little bit more general, but they can still be fairly specific. So I'll, I'll just give you a couple of communal confessions that I've read with some friends that we've written together and I've read and recited with some friends recently. There's deep power in this. Lord, we confess our pride and arrogance, all the ways we've stood in, antagonistic, in an antagonistic posture of superiority over others. There's a power in reading and confessing that together with others who are right there with you. Lord, we confess our envy and greed, all the ways we've longed for that which is not ours or more of that which you've already blessed us with, forgetting our call to live as a blessing to the world. So you can see, those are just a couple of examples. They're fairly broad in general, but they're also specific. We're confessing specific layers of brokenness in our lives, pride and greed, envy uh, and arrogance and all, all there's, you can go on and on, right? Um, so ultimately, whatever, whichever pragmatics um, you apply to your life, uh, I would encourage you with this, um, and I'll leave you with this quote from the 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a fantastic little book called Life Together. He says this about confession. In confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Sin wants to remain unknown and it shuns the light. So my encouragement to you, United Church, be united in this act of confessing your sins to God and to one another. And in doing so, in naming our sin, both individual and corporate, in naming our sins, in releasing our sin, in creating the room to receive forgiveness and healing from the Lord, words of affirmation uh, from one another, we create room for the light of Jesus to shine into the darkness. Sin is a beast that thrives in the deep seas of isolation and loneliness. Confession is that which brings sin up to open air, where it cannot breathe, 
and will eventually suffocate and die. And so confession is our way of coming up for air, out of isolation and into community. And so my hope and prayer for you as a church is that you might participate in this practice together. Um, grace and peace to you. I hope you're well. And um, yeah, may God go before you and with you.